0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony on this Monday edition of Washington Watch. Tony will be back in the chair with you tomorrow. Great to be with you, fresh off the Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. It was so good to see so many of you in Atlanta last week, where the show was broadcast from, and just a great event, uh, connecting with those there in Atlanta as well as Tens of thousands from around the country who were able to check in online as well. Today on the program, President Biden declared the COVID pandemic to be over, but the Biden administration is continuing to enforce COVID rules, including kicking service members out of the military for declining to get COVID vaccines. Will his new announcement that the pandemic is over change the federal government's actions? We'll talk about that. Also, new medical guidelines for transgender youth have been released. Is it good news or bad news? We'll tell you about that as well. Also, governors from border states have been flying and busing migrants to sanctuary cities all over the country. Is this a practical solution in good politics, or is it unbiblical exploitation? We'll have that conversation at the end of the program during our Worldview segment coming to you on Monday this week instead of Friday. But our headline today, with the crisis at the southern border showing no signs of abating, Republican governors have become innovative in their attempts to spotlight the situation. Texas Governor Greg Abbott began busing migrants to northern cities last spring, drawing eye from the mayors of Chicago, New York City, and Washington, D.C. And last week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis chartered planes to send migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Now, mayors of these cities, where they are being sent, are not pleased. Here's New York City Mayor Eric Adams. These migrants
2: and asylum seekers are not coming to any particular city. They're coming to America. This is an American uh, uh, crisis that we need to face, a humanitarian crisis that was made by human hands uh, by some of the governors in our southern uh, states.
1: Now, have the governors of our southern states created the problem, or are they responding to the problem? And will these moves force the Biden administration to change course in its handling of the southern border? (laughs) Joining me now to discuss this is U.S. Representative Andrew Clyde. He serves on the House Committee for Oversight and Reform and the House Homeland Security Committee. He represents Georgia's 9th District. Congressman Clyde, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on FRC.
1: It's good to see you today. Uh, tell me, are the moves by Governors Abbott and DeSantis finally waking people up to the situation at the border, you think?
2: Well, I think that they should be commended because, um, you know, if a city is going to declare themselves a sanctuary city, then I think that they've just said uh, to the entire country, we are a magnet, send us the illegals. We're a sanctuary city. We'll take care of them. We're happy to. Martha's Vineyard did that. San Francisco's done that. You know, the numerous other liberal cities, uh, Washington, D.C. here. uh, I think all the mayors should open them with welcome, you know, with welcome them with open arms. I mean, I think that's exactly what it means when you create uh, uh, a sanctuary city. And so I applaud the governors of both the Uh, Florida and of Texas and, you know, any other governors that want to send them, uh, send these illegals to the uh, sanctuary cities.
1: I think it's a great idea. Well, does that mean that you're surprised by the reaction they've received when these uh, when these migrants have been sent to these cities?
2: I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I would think they'd be happy about that. But, you know, obviously, Martha's Vineyard wasn't very happy about it. They rounded them all up and within 48 hours or so, shipped them to a military base. Really? I mean, uh, the hypocrisy of the left is just astounding. Uh, And that's what the American people are seeing here. I hope the governors of these states send more of them up there. You know, don't send 50, send 500. Um, Because they need to be understanding the pain that the border states are feeling. They need to feel that. They need to see that because it's the policies of the left that have created this crisis and disaster. And, you know, they want the border states to feel it. But they don't want anything to do with it, yet they're the ones that created the crisis. They supported President Biden. President Biden made the executive orders that – or created the executive orders that that made for an open border. Uh, And, you know, Latin America is simply responding to these policies.
1: Now, Congressman, there seems to be some disagreement among Democrats about whether the border actually is secure. Last week, Vice President Kamala Harris said that it was secure, and ABC News' John Carl asked Mayor Adams from New York City about that. Let's play clip two. Uh,
3: Vice President Harris one week ago uh, said that the border is secure. Do Do you agree
4: with that? Do you think our southern border is secure?
3: I
2: believe that we can continue to coordinate better to make sure that it is secured properly.
1: Congressman, how do you interpret that? Well, when he
2: says secure properly, I mean, he gives it away right there. It is not a secure border. The border has not been secure since President Biden took office. I mean, when he stopped the construction of the border wall, that's evidence right there. Uh, When you see people pouring across the border and then our government funding transport of them further inland. In fact, when I was in McAllen, Texas last year, I was on an airplane going from McAllen to Dallas, and there were 12 illegals on that airplane, two of them sitting right beside me on their way to Philadelphia, courtesy of the federal government funding the travel uh, via 501C3s. You know, it's inexcusable. Uh, the Biden administration has caused this crisis. The country needs to know that it is a continuing crisis. It's not something that's come and gone. It's ongoing. In fact, actually, it's getting worse. So I think that, um, that this is a huge issue for us. It's causing crime to increase. Uh, it's causing governments to spend money on illegals where they shouldn't have to, uh, money being taken away from citizens. Um, it's a disgrace. And this needs to stop and, and I, I just think that, um, uh, that the country needs to drastically change course here when it comes to leadership.
1: Uh, we're speaking to Congressman Andrew Clyde from the great state of Georgia. And, Congressman, there's a lot of conversation about this. Certainly the actions of uh, Governor Abbott and Governor Santis have gotten the nation's attention. There's a lot more conversation about the the border situation because of the busing decisions that they have made Do you think that this conversation and essentially getting some of these sanctuary cities and blue state governors and mayors to become involved in the situation, is that going to change the posture of the Biden administration? Do you think it'll change their behavior?
2: You know, I I hope it does. I really do. Um, But I'm not very confident that it will, because I think they have a nefarious end here. And that is that they want to increase the population population. Um, of the, of the blue states that are losing population. And, um, and I think they want to do that basically, uh, to keep the congress, the population so that the census, uh, will the congressional seats in those particular states. Um, and then they want it, as we heard, um, earlier, uh, last week, they want to turn them into voters. They want to give them amnesty and they believe that they'll vote for Democrats. Um, but, uh, you know, this is wrong. And I think the mayors in these uh, cities are going to feel the pain of it. And I think they should feel the pain of it because these are policies that the left has created and the left has to take responsibility for them. Uh, and the American people uh, need to know that and they need to make a change, make a change in leadership.
1: Congressman, right, so last question on this subject. Lots of issues that the voters are concerned about heading into November. Where does this rank for voters, do you think? Well I think probably the number one issue is
2: inflation um and after that um it's inflation and um it's inflation uh, I think that um uh this will this will come down a little bit below that um probably a crime is is after inflation and border security i think directly relates to that so I think it's in the top three or four uh when it comes to what what voters are actually looking at um and yeah I mean you've got the second amendment issue as well. Uh, with the Biden administration trying to take our guns and trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, cancel us as a first, you know, our First Amendment. I think that's a big issue for folks. Uh, they're experiencing that individually when the when the big tech companies cancel them on, you know, cancel their voice online. So there's a number of issues that the Biden administration has created, and um, I don't couldn't tell you the exact order, except I'll tell you, inflation's number one.
1: Congressman, I want to switch gears on you a bit. Uh, you proposed a new bill called the Protect Unborn, uh, the Protect the Unborn Act. Excuse me. Uh, tell us what you're trying to do there.
2: Thank you. Yes, that is a great piece of legislation, uh, and it is defunding the two Biden executive orders um, that uh, 14076 and 14079 that President Biden issued in July and August of this year, and those two orders are in response to the Supreme Court's decision uh, to strike down Roe v. Wade and to send the, the the subject of abortion back to the states, which is where it belongs. I think what President Biden did was a huge overreach of the federal government. He's trying to legislate here, and he is not in the legislative branch. He's in the executive branch. He is supposed to to faithfully execute the laws as Congress, the representatives of the people, pass them. And that's not what he's doing. He's trying to create his own law and trying to push push abortion services um, funded with federal money down to states that prohibit it, like my state of Georgia, which prohibits abortion. We have a heartbeat law. Um, and if you, if a heartbeat is detectable, then abortion cannot be performed. But for President Biden to, to sign these executive orders just flies in the face. Of what the Supreme Court has done and might bill, the Protect the Unborn Act is designed to strike down these two executive orders and to defund them. And I was proud to introduce it last week with 90 Republican original co-sponsors. So it's got a lot of support, as it should, because it protects the innocent unborn, it protects states' rights, it recognizes um, the authority of the Supreme Court, and uh, and it tells the Biden administration that they have overreached.
1: That legislation, of course, is more evidence of why elections matter. Of course, that will not uh, be advanced by the current Speaker of the House. And so for those who are interested in seeing that and other pro-life legislation, frankly, advanced, uh, that's going to be determined by the voters uh, this coming November. Now, Congressman, we know Uh that the Hyde Amendment— has been in place for a long time, and it prohibits already the use of federal funds for abortion. Why does that not take care of this situation?
2: Well, I think that you see that President Biden is simply ignoring federal law. It is federal law. There's a number of things that President Biden, I think, is requiring here, um, or asking the departments within the federal government to do that violate the law. And, uh, you know, it could go to the court, but it would take, as, as we have seen, you know, a year, year and a half for the courts to actually make a decision and to strike down these executive orders. So I think we need a more immediate solution. So a leg- legislative solution, I think, is the right one. And hopefully we'll have the majority in January and we'll be able to advance legislation like this uh, in January to strike down his executive orders. I mean, but
1: just go ahead. You know, final question for you. About a minute left. Less than that. Uh, you and 43 of your colleagues sent a letter to the Veterans Affairs Secretary, Den- Dennis McDonough, demanding he uh, rescind the new VA rule that provides abortion services through VA health care. Uh, where does that stand?
2: Well, and that's exactly what I was about to mention. I mean, you have... The VA responding to President Biden's executive orders, which were basically telling the administration or the the executive agencies, hey, find where you can to push abortion services into states that are preventing it. And it's unconscionable that the VA would be spending money designed to provide health care to veterans on abortion services, federally funded
1: abortion services. Congressman Clyde, thank you so much for your time. We are out of time. but greatly appreciate you being with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Coming up, President Biden said the COVID pandemic is over. So why is the Department of Defense still taking efforts to kick people out of the military for refusing to get the COVID vaccine? We'll discuss that when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
5: Learn more at FRC.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com. Over the weekend, President Biden declared the COVID pandemic to be over. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic in, is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. Well, that sounds like good news. However, the federal government continues its efforts to remove service members who declined to get the COVID vaccine for religious or personal reasons. Now, even before Biden's declaration, lawyers from Liberty Council argued that American military leaders may have violated federal law in their rejections of religious exemptions from the Defense Department's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Now, this could explain why fewer than 17% of the almost 25,000 religious exemptions requested were granted. Does the president's announcements make things better for service members who did not get the vaccine? Joining me now to discuss this is Roger K. Ganham, Assistant Vice President of Legal Affairs at Liberty Council. Roger, welcome back to Washington Watch.
4: Thanks for having me, Joseph. Glad to be here.
1: Glad to have you. You've been fighting for religious exemptions for service members. Does President Biden's declaration that the pandemic is now over affect
4: these cases? Well, I sure hope the Secretary of Defense was watching 60 Minutes when President Biden made that statement, because the Secretary of Defense and all the military branches have been have been fighting us tooth and nail to argue that ongoing universal vaccination without religious exemptions. Is required, but if the pandemic is really over, uh, then then obviously that requirement can't hold up. And to be honest with you, uh, there was never a justification for universal vaccination with no religious exemptions. But that's what the military branches have all done, uh, and uh, we've been we've been fighting them, and we'll continue to fight them until we uh, prevail in court.
1: Should this announcement be legally significant? Has the Department of Defense's argument been such that they depend on the existence of an ongoing pandemic
4: uh, to make their case? Well, that's a great question. I think the answer is, uh, well, we can't ever really rely on what President Biden says in public. uh, But we have something that's even more damning to the Department of Defense. And that's a memo from June of this year by the Inspector General of the Department of Defense uh, that found that the review of religious accommodation requests throughout the military was deficient. Uh, In a sense, or in a word, the military officers who were reviewing these requests were not giving them due consideration, and were just issuing blanket denials across the board. Uh, We've been saying that throughout our litigation, uh, but this memo that just came to light this month uh, reveals that the inspector general in the Department of Defense knew this was the case all along. So this evidence that the re- religious accommodation requests are not being reviewed properly, along with the president's declaration that the pandemic is over, uh, should be two key pieces of evidence uh, in bringing down these vaccine mandates across the military.
1: now let's talk a bit about that memo that you referenced there, When a a religious exemption is requested, what is the duty of the, in this case, the Department of Defense, and
4: how did they behave that was inconsistent with what their duty should have been? Well, a senior military official in the particular branch is supposed to review all of the facts and circumstances and make an individualized determination as to whether a religious accommodation is possible. Uh, But what happened in this case is, (laughs) Senior officials were just giving blanket denials, and when those denials were appealed, the appellate official or the official reviewing that appeal did the same thing. In fact, the inspector general calculated that if, if the, the reviewing military officials did nothing else in a 10-hour workday but review religious accommodation appeals, they'd be giving them an average of 12 minutes of attention per appeal. Um, There is no way that that satisfies the legal obligation to give each request an individualized review based on all the facts and circumstances. The bottom line is the military has never been able to justify in any particular case that a vaccination was necessary to allow a service member to do his or her job. Uh, But the military has been quite content to see thousands of honorable Hardworking and loyal service members walk away from military careers uh, because the, the military has been unbending in this universal vaccination requirement.
1: And if you could tell us a bit more about the status of the evictions or the dismissals, because we know that there have been, last I thought, I think I heard. Over 10,000 service members that had been dismissed. But then there's also some indication that that is slowing and maybe for good reason. What's the rate of service members being dismissed at this point?
4: Well, I can't update those numbers that that you've heard, but I can say we have seen a slowing uh, as a result of uh, class-wide injunctions that have been entered for the Navy, Uh, for the Air Force, and for the Marines. Um, So we hope that these injunctions will will slow the process down uh, until we can get final relief for all of these service members, Uh, and we're hoping that maybe we can obtain that by the end of the year.
1: Now, you've talked about the information uncovered in this memo indicating that the Department of Defense has not given these requests, the individualized detention that the law requires. Have you had the chance to show that to a judge yet and allow him or her
4: to consider that in this case? Uh, to my knowledge, no judge has seen the memorandum yet. Uh, but in our Marines case, for example, uh, we're preparing for trial uh, that will occur uh, in January. And if not before then, certainly at that trial, uh, our judge will become aware of this memorandum that shows that the military not only wasn't reviewing requests properly, but that it's known about it for, uh, well, at least since June, if not before. Yeah.
1: Uh, Roger, final question for you. Just this week, New York City fired 850 public school or educators, uh, employees for not being vaccinated. If you are able to prevail in the Department of Defense case, might that have implications for civilians?
4: Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think so, especially in the case of educators, uh, where, again, there, there can be no showing that justifies across-the-board denials uh, of exemptions, uh, especially religious-based exemptions under the Constitution, uh, under the First Amendment. So hopefully uh, any decision in our military case will have a ripple effect uh, throughout the country in civilian contexts as well. Yeah, because the
1: goal certainly is uh, more freedom for people and uh, that includes our service members and that includes those who are not service members as well. Uh, But we thank you, uh, Roger Ganim and everyone at Liberty Council for doing all that you do on behalf of our First Freedoms and thanks for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, last week a transgender medical organization released their guidelines for gender surgeries with no minimum age for when such procedures should be done this good news bad news we'll talk about it when we come back stay with us here on washington watch
5: are you a university student do you know a university student specifically one who wants to grow as a christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture look no further Family Research Council has a life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
6: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood.
1: Joseph Backholm. Good to be with you. I'm sitting in for Tony today. He'll be back in the chair tomorrow. Last week, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, released its Standards of Care Version 8. You may remember that earlier this month, we covered the story that WPATH was, was expected to lower its age recommendation for children to receive gender surgeries. Instead, WPATH removed age guidelines altogether with no explanation as to why. Now, this is important because counselors, hospitals, children's court judges, and other officials tend to march in lockstep with the advice of this rather radical transgender organization. So what does the removal of the guidelines mean? Joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Jennifer Bowens, Director of the Center for Family Studies here at Family Research Council, Dr. Bowers, Bowens has extensive clinical and research experience working with survivors of trauma and abuse, and has also taught on psychological trauma and research methods in several graduate programs. Dr. Bowens, good to see you today. Good to be with you, Joseph. So what was your first reaction when you saw these new guidelines that did not have any minimum age requirements?
7: Right. Um... Well, in some ways, you could take this as, okay, maybe they're responding to a lot of the pushback that they've seen on the, definitely on the national scene here in the U.S., um, where we're watching, um, you know, Boston Hospital and and other organizations uh, where it's come out that very young people have been um, subject to these transgender procedures. Um, so, you know, you could see the, that perhaps there could be a response to sort of say, okay, we're not going to address the age thing at all. But on the other hand, it's also very disconcerting that there is no age because, um, what does that mean in terms of having guidelines that actually give no age, uh, for, for how you engage in cross-sex hormones or transgender surgeries? That's very disturbing.
1: Yeah, does this seem more likely uh, to be uh, turning a blind eye if five-year-olds are transitioned, or simply not encouraging sixteen, seventeen-year-olds to be transitioned?
7: Right. I mean, and we know that there have been clinics in the U.S. that have seen two-year-olds, and have have um, some of these uh, folks who who are aligned with the WPATH guidelines have said, "What what is age? Um, it's just a number." So this is disconcerting um because obviously if gender is considered um a social construct uh, that supersedes uh, biological sex then um what's next um is age also just considered as this person said it's uh, just a number that doesn't really matter and you can uh, have these procedures done whenever uh you first exhibit any sign um, and, by the way, stereotypical sign of, of identifying with the, with the opposite biological sex. Yeah.
1: Now, Dr. Brown's Rachel Levine is the assistant secretary at Department of Health and Human Services, also reacted to this. Had this to say over the weekend about the new guidelines. Let's play clip five. It is critically important that medical decisions and the public pronouncements
4: about them are based on science and human compassion rather than slander and stigmatization. The mental health of a generation of young
1: trans Americans depends on that. It is wrong to politicize medical care. Dr. Bowens uh, there said, Dr. Levine there said that it's important that we act on the basis of science and compassion. But isn't the real challenge here that uh, both sides believe the other side has politicized the science?
7: Yes, um, both sides do believe that, and and I would actually agree with um, uh, Dr. Levine's comments because um, we do need to base things based on science. But let's just step back for a moment and look at what the how the WPATH guidelines were actually conceptualized. So when you talk about evidence based science, it's supposed to be a science that is is based on the best available evidence. Right. So my question to um, WPATH would be: well, What do you do with all of the evidence that shows that uh, that there are harms to one's physiology? That what about the cardiac uh, issues that arise, or uh, diabetes, or um, bone issues? And then, what do you do with this other group of people who have clearly uh, these procedures haven 't worked and they 've detransitioned doesn 't that merit investigation and then of course, what do you do with all of the reports that um, when when organizations like American Academy for Pediatrics uh, when their membership is calling for a review of the science and instead you suppress their ability to make comments? Or universities that are suppressing um, studies that are contrary to the "quote unquote" best available evidence that WPATH mm-hmm. um, claims that they're a- about. So, just to give you context there, but in the reality um, of how these are formulated, it's actually by vote. Um, so, just to demystify the scientific process, mm-hmm. uh, is they're they're looking at this science that aligns with their viewpoint. And, and it doesn't take much to unpack that. And Dr. Balans,
1: in, in just a few seconds here, I want to quickly ask, do you have reason to believe that those arguments are even being considered by WPATH the negative consequences of these transitions?
7: It certainly doesn't seem like it, Joseph. It seems like what, what's happening is more of a political dance rather than one that's truly after the well-being of children, because if, if you were about the science, you would invite those to the table who have contrary opinions, and you would start conducting research that actually uh, addresses the concerns that so many have, have um, stated.
1: Dr. Jennifer Bowens, thanks for your time. Thank you. Coming up, our worldview segment, how do we vote to reflect our faith? and? Is it unbiblical to be bussing people from Texas and Florida to Martha's Vineyard and Chicago? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us.
6: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
7: With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAN to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAN to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text S-T-A-N-D to 67742. That's STAND to 67742.
5: Are you a university student? Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. Among the many high points from last week's Pray Vote Stand was hearing the message from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President Dr. Albert Moeller. While it was clear that the audience in attendance found his message inspiring, Several of his his comments drew criticism after going viral online. 2022
0: in the United States means votes matter. And we have a responsibility to make certain that Christians understand the stewardship of the vote, which means the discipleship of the vote, which means the urgency of the vote, the treasure of the vote. And they need to understand that insofar as they do not vote or they vote wrongly, they are unfaithful because the vote is a powerful stewardship. And we need to remind Christians of that we need to remind Christians of what's at
1: stake. Dr. Mueller stood by his words, later tweeting, if you are offended that I encourage Christians to vote for candidates who defend the unborn and support the integrity of marriage and to vote against candidates who support abortion and subvert marriage, that has been my message for my entire life. Did He Speak Out of Bounds? Joining me now to discuss this in our worldview segment that typically comes to you on Friday, but today, it's a special edition on Monday, is David Claussen. He's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council, and that can be found at frc.org slash worldview. David, good to see you today. Hey,
3: good to see you as well, Joseph.
1: So we played the clip there. I believe you were actually there in person to hear it live. Um, But one thing we can say is that Dr. moeller 's words were not taken out of context. He said exactly what he said. They, of course, drew criticism. Did you have any problem with it? I did not have any problem with Dr. moeller's remarks, and I was uh, with
3: him there down in Atlanta at our private stand summit, <laughs> which I thought was just a, a very encouraging uh, event. And, and what Dr. Mueller said uh, to our, atten- our attendees there in Atlanta is something Uh, that he's been exhorting Christians uh, for as long as I've known him. I'm a two-time graduate of Southern Seminary, so uh, he's been my seminary president uh, since I started my master's program back in 2014. And Dr. Moeller has been consistent, uh, simply saying that Christians have a stewardship uh, when it comes to the vote. And that's, I think, you know, Dr. Moeller uh, and others, uh, Joseph, who have... Uh, spoken about these things, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, as Christians, we're called to be faithful uh, with everything God has entrusted us uh, with, um, whatever that may be, but for those of us who live in the United States, where we live in a constitutional republic, uh, how we steward our vote, how we steward our opportunities in the political system, that's something we should take very seriously, and that's all that Dr. Moeller was doing uh, in Atlanta.
1: Now, David, I think one of the reasons that that, his comments received so much uh, pushback was because he said, or he implied, but basically said, that it's possible for Christians to vote wrongly. And uh, in, in, in a biblical sense, what do you make of this idea that it's possible to vote wrongly, and how does one know if they're about to cast a vote that would be, in God's eyes, wrong?
3: Yeah, it's a great question, Joseph, and I think this is where Christians need to think just deeply about politics and about uh, what as Christians were called to do. Um, we need to be very honest, and it's, what a blessing, Joseph, that we can even have this conversation. There are many Christians, and I've met some of them, around the world that don't have the political freedoms and opportunities that we have in this country. Uh, The very fact that we're having this conversation is a blessing. But I think it's important to realize, Joseph, that there's a lot of issues out there uh, in the public square uh, that the Bible does not necessarily speak to. I think we can get biblical principles uh, for pretty much almost every issue under the sun. But there are some issues where uh, I think Christians can definitely come to the issue, discuss it, pray about it, and have different opinions. There's no, thus saith the Lord. Uh, there's no chapter and verse for a lot of issues that we can deal with. However, there are some issues, Joseph, uh, that increasingly we realize there's a, thus saith the Lord. And the two issues that Dr. Moeller highlighted marriage. And the life issue, those are issues that the Bible speaks very clearly. We don't, we don't have to guess what God's opinion is on those issues. When it comes to marriage, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, Matthew 19, those are verses that speak very clearly to the Bible's perspective on marriage. On the life issue, Psalm 139, Luke 1, and other passages, those speak very clearly that the Bible is pro-life. And increasingly, uh, when we look at these different political races at the local level, the, the state level, and the federal level, there are candidates running for political office, one of which will have a very pro-Bible position, so to speak, be very pro-life and pro-traditional marriage, pro-biblical marriage, and the other will be the antithesis of those. And I think that's where, as Christians, we need to, increase in, we need to realize what, uh, what the context is and what issues are at play. Because increasingly, Joseph, the issues we're being asked to weigh in on are not ones on which um, the Bible is unclear, uh, but actually very clear on.
1: And a lot of the concern is, and I know the argument the hear from many people when it comes to voting is, well, nobody's perfect. All the candidates are imperfect, and not all of them have perfect positions. Yeah, they might disagree with God on marriage and abortion, but this other person disagrees with God, as they understand it, on maybe a different issue. And we're going to talk about immigration in just a moment. But what would you say to somebody who is... who's making the argument, well, they're all imperfect, so it's really just up to me to decide uh, which version of imperfection I find most tolerable and then just vote for them.
3: Yeah, and I I would agree with that person, the hypothetical voter, that unless Jesus himself is on the ballot, we are always choosing between the lesser of two evils. We're we're choosing between uh, sinful candidates. Um, And my encouragement is let's look at the issues and let's look at the Bible and, you know, issues such as poverty. There's no candidate that's saying we want more poverty. Uh both political parties, the Republican Party and the Democrat Party in our context want to alleviate poverty, uh, but they'll have different uh approaches and different ideas on how to alleviate that. I think we just need to have an honest conversation. But, Joseph, there's other, other issues, like I've already said, the life issue, where, unfortunately, one party increasingly uh, wants unlimited abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. Not just that. They want it to be funded and subsidized by taxpayers, whereas the, um, in many races, the other party, the Republican Party in recent years, is wanting to protect unborn children. Um, and so I think we, we need to weigh the issues. And just I think every voter needs to ask themselves the question, what issues is there clear, thus saith the Lord? What issues does the Bible speak most clearly? And I think uh, that kind of having a triage, all issues matter, um, but some issues matter more. And we need to d- determine what issues uh, does the Bible clearly tell us that we really need to care on.
1: I think a helpful way to think about this is is not necessarily becoming one-issue voters, but being people who understand the minimum qualifications for what it means uh, to earn the vote of a Christian. And just because you disqualify someone doesn't obligate you to vote for someone else. But there should be a minimum benchmark of we don't kill kids, and we agree with God's understanding. We don't take sides with the enemy in the sexual revolution. And if people do those things, they're not going to. I'm not going to vote for them. And maybe hopefully I can find someone else who, uh, based on my conscience, is qualified. But we have to be quick to disqualify people who we know are fighting God's design for life in the world and in the created order that he created in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. David we could spend more time on that but i'm not going to we're quickly going to move on because the other uh, topic that we have actually started the show off with mm. is this whole story of bussing immigrants and we know that there's a border crisis 2 million people just mm. this year have crossed the border already more than 2021 and now the governors of states like florida and texas are sending them to other states to blue states states uh, up north that have not typically borne the uh, borne the burden of the immigration challenges at the border, and they have objected. They declared themselves to be sanctuary cities, but they objected to this. Now, a lot of people have called this and seen this as a political stunt, that they are using these peoples, these image, these image bearers of God, as yeah. pawns in a political scheme. Uh, do you see that happening? And as a result of that, does that mean it's, it's unbiblical? The Christians should not support this effort to move people from uh, southern states to northern states.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, and I think why we have the Center for Biblical Worldviews, we want to think biblically about uh, all issues, including the issue of immigration. And on this issue, Joseph, kind of like I was alluding to in the last question, there's no thus saith the Lord on immigration policy. Um, So we have to weigh this very carefully. I think... Uh, what uh, Ron DeSantis and uh, Governor Abbott in Texas—they've definitely drawn a lot of attention to this issue. So you have the mayor of Chicago, uh, mayor of New York City, um, people up in Martha's Vineyard—you uh, know, very liberal folks who have kind of been able to talk about this issue in theory and in the abstract, um, kind of virtue signal on the issue. Now all of a sudden, when you have these uh, immigrants being uh, dropped off on their doorsteps, uh, they're all of a sudden it seems very. Um, uh, they're they're now very uh, different in their tune, saying that they're not prepared to deal with this and we need to think about our immigration system. And so I think in one sense what the governors in the southern states have done is they've highlighted how broken our immigration system is. But the question you asked, Joseph, is, is this the most humane way to do it? And I I think what you you mentioned is key, Joseph, uh, that as Christians we need to look at this first and foremost through the lens of all of the people that we're talking about right here are made in god's image they have value they have dignity and so i don't know the the, the heart motives uh, of the governors of texas and florida and if all of this is simply just a political stunt and they're you know turning these people into pawns um that's not what would be the most honoring way to handle uh you know to, for image bearers and so i think as christians Uh, We do need to think about how are these it's good to draw attention to the immigration issue. uh, But are we also doing this in a way that makes sure that we're uh, not violating the dignity uh, of people that uh, are creating God's image that he cares about?
1: and, And what we should establish at the beginning of this conversation is that. If they are being abused, if they're being kidnapped and these, these words are being thrown around online and yeah. you, you know, take all that with a grain of salt, but this has been referred to as kidnapping and human, ta- human trafficking. And I think that's not accurate. If that was happening, if people were, you know, at gunpoint being forced to get on buses and then be shipped someplace they didn't want to go, we would all come together and say that shouldn't happen. There's no evidence that I've seen that that's happening. Um, but they are being put on buses and they are being taken other places, which to me begs the question, in in what is also stipulated in this case, everybody agrees, these people have come into the country without legal authority to do so. They don't have any papers. They've essentially broken into the country. Now, we might say their motives are not bad in doing so. We might even sympathize with the circumstances under which they've done that, but they have broken into a country they're not from. When you do that, do you have the right to, and I think this is kind of the foundation of this question, do you have to have the right to demand how you are treated, or does the place that you break into have some discretion within the bounds of humanity, of course, to say, hey, well, you've come into our country, we're going to treat you with dignity, but we can't handle you here, or we're overwhelmed, we're going to take you someplace else. Isn't it reasonable for... um a migrant or somebody on behalf of the migrants to complain about the way that they are treated within reason, of course, when you break into somebody's country.
3: I think so, Joseph, and the text that I immediately thought of when I was thinking about this story is Romans 13, uh, verses 1 through 7 is kind of the the most important text for how Christians think about what the role of a government is. It's been ordained. It's been instituted by God, and the government exists uh, to do good, to restrain evil, and that's one of the reasons Christians have always said that we need to uh, support law enforcement. We need to support the rule of law and uh... whereas those on the left don't seem to like to talk about it uh... it is true when anyone enters this country illegally they are breaking laws and i've talked to people in florida that's my home state florida i've talked to people in texas and you're absolutely right i think the number is over two million folks in the last year or year and a half that have entered this country illegally uh... cities on our southern border and other states they are absolutely overwhelmed uh, and th- that unfortunately is leading to situations uh, that are, are abysmal for, for some of these migrants. And so I think it is, what, what, you're, what the, the point that you're making, Joseph, is I, I do think what the governor of Florida and the governor of Texas, uh, they've done the country a favor in one sense by making sure that this issue is again uh, front and center because uh, again these aren't uh, th- these are people that we're talking about and i think as christians we should want a strong southern border and we should want our nation to enforce its laws because uh, if you don't have a nation that has laws being enforced you have chaos and that right. is certainly not um the purpose of government as paul explains it in romans 13.
1: david i also want to highlight i think the uh the goodness of the fact that we're even having this conversation, mm. uh, because if we take this outside of an American t- context, what happens if you break into China, right? What do they do to you? There's a lot of countries where you're not treated nearly this graciously, and the fact that we have a a cultural national ethic that recognizes human rights, that values human rights, that is an inherently Christian inheritance that we have, and where we were founded on this idea that we all have value, that we were, and, and our rights come from us as image bearers of God. They're endowed to us by our creator, human rights and legal rights that are constitutional, that as non-citizens, you don't have those, but all people have human rights that our government wants to recognize. That's an inherently Christian thing. And again, we would disavow abuse wherever we would find that. We don't see any evidence of that. And David, finally, to wrap this up, um, do the people who say, hey, you're being unbiblical in this case, do you think they actually care if you're being
3: unbiblical? I don't know the motives of uh, the heart motives of people saying that, but I, I, studies we've done with George Barnard says only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. And so I think that most of the people making that argument are operating from a position uh, where they're, they're not seeing the lens through a biblical worldview. So I, I don't think that's what's going on there
1: yeah and I think in in many cases we see this where where people in a political debate will say, Hey uh, to two people who they know do care who people who identify as christians they 'll say hey well you 're not being Christian there, and let me tell you what it means to be a christian what, let me tell you what it means to think biblically when there 's nothing about their life that evidences any interest in acting or thinking Christianly. And I would submit as we close today that those are the last people you should listen to uh, to understand what it is that God wants for you and for the world. David, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, that is our show today. We are so glad that you have joined us once again. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow here on Washington Watch. And until then, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time.